Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we find out how scientists can improve everyday materials with better physics and chemistry. From taking inspiration from beetles and their brilliant white scales, finding ways to more efficiently melt the ice off wings, or even a way to make a flame retardant material that's much safer. This week we focus on how physics and chemistry can be applied to help solve everyday problems like keeping planes in the sky or reducing the environmental impact of common building materials. Now one of the most important pieces of infrastructure in any airport isn't the baggage carousel, isn't the fuel refueling trucks or the airport bridges, yet they're all very very important but they're not one of the most crucial and often short-handed pieces of equipment at an airport. See you see, when planes go up into the sky, you probably realise that the air up there is thinner, the atmosphere less dense, obviously they're travelling quite high, and it also gets quite cold. Now, in the old days, when we had open cabins, that's why pilots had all these big warm wool-lined helmets, and jackets and scarves. So if you look at a photo from World War II, for example, of a pilot, you'll see them all rugged up inside their cockpit. But now with modern planes with climate-controlled cabins, we forget that the air up there can be quite chilly. And when that plane lands, it can be landing back down, carrying a huge amount of ice that is actually formed on the plane's wings and other surfaces. Now, you might think, well, who cares about a little bit of ice? It's a plane, it's flying, it's carrying me, my luggage, and everything else inside of it. But that ice can actually have a pretty critical impact on the aerodynamics of the plane. Now, the wings of a plane are designed with a lot of careful science in mind. They're actually designed to try and make sure that the flow is smooth and to ensure that they generate enough lift and enough control. And there aren't things like weird turbulence of vortices that swirl around in the air behind the plane. They may not stop the plane from flying, but they certainly chew up a lot of fuel and make it very, very inefficient. The more fuel you burn, well, the less efficient your plane is and the more dangerous also it is to fly because you're chewing through fuel at an uncontrolled rate that can uh, throw off all kinds of pilot calculations. It also can make the plane hard to control if there's ice on a flap or aerolon because that changes the way those steering devices work on the plane. So, therefore, one of the most critical pieces of equipment at an airport is the de-icing machine. And its job is to heat up and melt all that ice that forms on a plane when it lands. If the pilot thinks there's an unusual amount of ice that hasn't shaken loose when it lands, they'll probably whip out the de-icing machine and run it over the plane's wings a few times. Now, if you imagine you have a lot of planes landing and you're in, say, a cold place, the de-icing machine becomes pretty important. So, when a de-icing machine works, is it's basically a massive hairdryer that's trying to heat the air up around the wing to rapidly melt off that ice. But is that really the most efficient way to melt ice? Well, that's what some researchers from University of Illinois, Urbany-Champaign and University of Kyushu have been looking into. Because, as we just discussed, melting ice is really, really important, not just for airplanes, but for roads or other pieces of key infrastructure. And doing it quickly and efficiently with energy use is actually very important. Because you don't want to just burn a lot of energy heating up the air around the wing, you just want to actually melt off the ice. So what's the best way to do it? Now this research was just published in the journal Applied Physics Letters. And what it described was a way of moving ice and frost from surfaces in an extremely efficient manner. 
using less than 1% of the energy and 0.01% of the time needed for traditional defrosting methods. Now, think about a large, big area. The larger it is, the more energy you need to use to melt the water on it. So if you had a large A380 or a 787, that's a lot of wing you need to melt ice off. So getting it done, even a small saving, is quite significant. But this is huge orders of magnitude, 100 times smaller than what we're doing currently. Now the biggest source of inefficiency in conventional systems is that most of the energy used for de-icing goes into heating other components of the system, rather than actually directing the heat to the frost or ice. This means that you spend most of your time heating up the air around the wing and the top surface of the wing, but not actually melting up the ice itself. So rather, they chose to focus the where the heat was being applied, so they can use a very small amount of heat in exactly the right spot. Now, the researchers proposed delivering a pulse of incredibly high levels of current right into the surface itself. And basically, their idea is if you melt the interface surface, so the ice forms on, say, glass or a wing, if you melt the bonding layer between those two, you don't need to melt all the ice. You actually just need to melt the part where it's stuck. If you turn that into liquid water, the ice can just slide off. And that sounds pretty attractive because it would be fast and also means you don't need a lot of energy. And that's exactly what they did. So to ensure the pulse reaches the actual space rather than everywhere else, they actually applied a thin coat of what's called indium tin oxide, ITO, which is a conductive film often used for defrosting. And they applied it to the surface of the material. Then they injected a super high current into that thin layer of tin oxide. That tin oxide conducted the electricity, heated up as it conducted the electricity, and the ice bonded to that, melted and slid away. And they actually did a proper test of this. The scientists defrosted a small glass surface, which was cooled only down to minus 15 degrees, which is about as cold as the warmest parts of Antarctica. And then they took it all the way down to minus 71 degrees, the actual coldest part of Antarctica. Now, these were chosen because they're actually typical temperatures for heating, ventilation, air conditioning, and refrigeration applications, as well as on a plane wing. Because inside an air conditioner or a fridge, you have exactly the same problem. Yes, you want it to be cold, but you don't want it to be so cold that it clogs up full of ice. So this is a pretty exciting idea, because by basically painting on, applying a layer of this ITO, they can inject current through it, heat up just that layer of paint effectively, and melt and let the ice slide away. Now, actually, it's quite interesting because in a large surface area, like on a wing, for example, you actually end up with a pretty large continuous sheet of ice, which means if you break off or melt one little section of it, you can start causing the whole thing to slide. So you don't even need to melt the whole thing. You only need to remove a very thin layer at the interface before you can slide off that whole massive sheet. Now, they still haven't figured out how to get this ITO to bond conformally to a curved surface and how much energy they would need to actually melt off an entire wing's worth. But for anything that's involved with trying to keep large chunks of ice from forming inside it, whether it be a refrigerant, an air conditioner, industrial application, or an aeroplane, this is a pretty exciting research published in the Applied Physics Letters Journal from researchers from University of Illinois' Urbany-Champaign and University of Kyushu.
Now, from tales of superconductive paint helping shear away ice forming on a surface, to trying to understand exactly how to make paint more efficient. Now, you'll see across the world lots of things that are painted white. But actually, white is a pretty hard colour to achieve. Naturally occurring white, even stranger. Especially to do without any sorts of pigments or dyes. Now, conventionally, white paint normally contains nanoparticles of titanium dioxide. And the reason why they use titanium dioxide is because once light hits titanium dioxide, given its certain structure, it actually bounces and reflects a lot of different light and scatters it incredibly strongly. That scattering results in no single colour being bounced back to your eye more than any other, and you end up with seeing it as white. But the problem is, the use of titanium dioxide is very damaging to the environment. It contributes to nearly 75% of the carbon footprint of each tin of paint that is produced. Which, when you think about of a large paint company like Dulux, well, they're producing an awful lot of paint, and if most of that carbon footprint from that paint is coming from one simple additive, you can understand why researchers are trying to find a way to make it better. Not only to help save the planet, but also just as common sense. So how to actually achieve white in nature is actually very interesting. And that's what researchers from the University of Sheffield have been working on, including Dr. Andrew Parnell and Dr. Stephanie Berg. And they published their findings in the Communications Chemistry Journal. Now, when they look at things in nature, whiteness is normally created by having what they describe as a foamy Swiss cheese-like structure made of solid but interconnected networks with inside them gaps for air. Now these interconnected networks and gaps for air mean that you scatter the light in some type of natural structure. But understanding how these structures form and how they've evolved this certain light scattering property has remained for scientists a big mystery, especially when you consider a certain type of beetle, the Sophocles beetle, because it has on its scales some of the brightest whites that you will see in nature and their super ultra white appearance is actually caused by these tiny scales instead of with a pigment or a dye. So trying to understand how these beetles manage to have incredibly white and beautiful scales without using titanium dioxide is a, a pretty interesting prospect. And to do that, well then you could figure out exactly how to replicate their structure that these beetles are using, using common materials. Especially if they're recyclable, though, that would make paint a lot more environmentally friendly. So knowing that these beetles have on their skin these scales, and these scales contain a certain structure, well the next question is, well, how do we study that structure? And to do that, well, you have to take the individual beetle's scale and then put them in a CT scan, or X-ray tomography. And they used specific types of synchrotron facilities to try and get intense X-ray scans of the whole scale. And with that, you actually can build a really detailed model of the type of structure that these beetles have in their nanoscales. And this helps us understand what structures work best when you actually scatter light. So once they got this model and once they had the data, well then the next step was to try and make their own version. And they took low cost lab grade materials that are available pretty commonly. And they could form with them the same structure basically by using recycled plastic waste, to form the same structure as the beetles have on their scales, creating these right proportion of empty spaces and rigidly linked networks. And that made them be able to make their own ultra-white colouring, almost exactly like the beetles have on their scales. 
but in a coloring format that they could apply to a material. So that's pretty amazing to think about because now they've made a coating material that they can coat things with that ends up with, after it's dried, the right structure to scatter light to make it appear super white. If you could apply this technique, including the part about using recycled plastic to make this structure coating, well, then that would reduce the carbon footprint of each tin of paint dramatically and make them much more environmentally friendly. So this is some great work from the University of Sheffield, researchers including Dr. Stephanie Berg and Dr. Andrew Parnell, published in the journal Communications Chemistry. And one of the most important inventions of human civilization is of course the harnessing of fire and using it as a tool. But almost probably since we first harnessed fire, we've also been trying to stop fire from being in places we don't want it to be. And part of that is actually developing flame retardant materials. Now flame retardants are in thousands of everyday items, from clothing to furniture to electronics. And we've always been searching for more and more efficient flame retardants. But the problem is, a lot of the time, some of these substances have been shown to be pretty harmful for humans. Cast your mind back to asbestos. Now, the reason why asbestos is used in so many things a while many years ago is, as a building material, it was great because it was like cement, it was incredibly water resistant, and it was flame retardant. Problem was, it was also very, very dangerous to human health. The fibres from asbestos can lead to lots of serious and fatal lung diseases. So that's one example of a flame retardant that we used quite extensively because it was a very good performer, but actually in other ways was incredibly devastating to human life. Now, another concern is with organohalogens, which are derived from petroleum. It's one of the most commonly used flame retardants, but it is very toxic and it is not biodegradable. So it's damaging to the environment and to human health. So researchers are looking for new ways to actually find flame retardant materials that aren't toxic and are biodegradable. And that one of those ideas was presented at the American Chemical Society's fall national meeting and exposition. Researchers like now, researchers like Bob Howell from the Central Michigan University have been trying to find ways to actually make a less damaging to the environment flame retardant. Now, what makes organohalogen, a commonly used compound at the moment, particularly good as a flame retardant, is it contains something called brominated aromatics. It's a type of organic chemistry. But the problem is, when you throw these items away, they actually leach out of the main item they're in, like electronics or building material or so on. And these substances then get into the soil and spread through the environment. And most organohalogen flame retardants are very stable, which means that microorganisms in the soil or water can't actually degrade them. So they just stay for years and years and years in the environment, and they get concentrated working their way up the food chain from every creature that chows down on them. And because they don't break down, they sort of build up. And that's quite bad. Now, also, you can see that sometimes with an item such as electronics, you can get migration out of the electronics itself and into household dust. That's also pretty bad. For example, some governments, like in California, have banned organohalogens for use in children's products, mattresses, and upholstered furniture after 2018. 
And that shows you that people are starting to wisen up to the potentially dangerous effects of these. And that's good that we actually are now having some regulations, but bad because we need to find another solution to flame-retarded properties. So, these researchers turned their mind to something quite surprising. They actually looked to some pretty biodegradable and non-toxic forms of organic chemistry. And where they found it was in some renewable biosources. They're actually getting them derived from plants. Now, the main substance they're using is gallic acid, which is commonly found in fruits, nuts, and leaves, and 3,5-dihydrobenzoic acid, which is from buckwheat. So these are two plant-based chemicals. And using a fairly simple chemical reaction, they converted the hydroxyl groups on these compounds, so one sort of group of them, into flame-retardant phosphorus esters. So basically, they added some phosphorus to those hydroxyl groups and made a new chemical compound with it, these phosphorus esters. And they have been shown to actually have pretty good flame retardant properties. Then the team added these phosphorus esters individually to epoxy resin. Epoxy resin is basically something that you use often in electronics, automobiles, or aircraft to fill in a material and stop it from water getting in or it catching fire. And by adding these phosphorus esters in there, you can actually give it some flame retardant properties. So basically, they added some of this flame-retardant phosphorus esters to some glue and then put it on electronics so they could test this material's ability to withstand heat. And what they found is that it actually reduced the peak heat release rate of the epoxy resin. So basically, at what point it starts to really pass through that heat and responds badly to flame. Um, it re increased its ability to withstand heat tremendously. Equal performance to the organohalogens, the current practice used compound and actually in some areas it could probably be quite a lot better or more concentrated. The other important part is that because gallic acid has actually has three hydroxyl groups you can actually get more bang for your buck you can make it more strongly concentrated or use less as an additive which means it's actually even cheaper as well to make than the organohalogens derived from petroleum. They also just studied how these compounds can help quench flame as in put out a current fire rather than just withstanding heat. So compounds with a high level of oxygenation, such as phosphates, decompose to a substance that promotes charring on the polymer surface rather than burning. So if a material chars instead of burnings, it sort of starves the flame of any more fuel. And that's pretty good for helping extinguish a fire if it does happen. So not only is it better at withstanding heat and stopping heat being passed through, it also means you can help put out a fire if it starts. Now, these teams have not yet actually done toxicity tests on these materials. But the important part to note here is that these compounds have been shown to be much less harmful than organohalogens, but also they're plant-derived. So they're actually coming from a very renewable and biodegradable source in the first place. And they're also less likely to migrate between substances out of their boundaries and into dust. So flame retardants based from organic chemistry or actual organic material like plants, like buckwheat or nuts, that's a pretty big step away from using petroleum-based products and a way to make our environment healthier and our homes safer. So some great work from the University of Central Michigan. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From mounting ice off the wings to making flame retardant materials and even ways to make paint more environmentally friendly. This week we found out about physics and chemistry helping improve everyday objects. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.